Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. What's the date today? It's the 7th of May. It's really cold outside. First show of May. First show of May. Yay. Yay, May. And you didn't get to pinch and punch me. I know. So. Yeah, to hell with you, Jim. <laughs> I won. I got through it. I got through it. You are the winner. I am the winner. I'll get you next time. My Chris. skin's all dry. And I mean, all, all calm and good. Unpinched. We've got a full studio today. There's full studio, George yes. sitting good across morning. from me doing the panelling, so it'll be a smooth show, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> There's Chris Woods. Um, I got a lot Crikey's, to say. Crikey's morning reporter and a freelance science political and immigration journalist joining us as usual for news headlines. Thank you, Anya. And we've also got Zoya. Hello. Hi, Zoya. Zoya's a new addition to the Tuesday Breakfast team. Um, they're very cool. They have a very cool English accent. Can you oh. say hello again? Gosh, you're setting, you're setting me up quite a bit there <laughs> now, aren't you? It's great. No matter what you say, it's going to sound great. I know. I'm, I'm trying to rely on my accent to sound smart. <laughs> <laughs> And then there's boring old me, Anya. Thank you. I like that nobody introduced me, so I'll introduce myself. Hello, Anya. You're on a roll. So yeah. you're, you're just so amazing, you don't need the okay, introduction. Okay, okay. All right. Yeah. Thanks. That's really what I wanted. A lot of fishing. Now that that's all out of the way. So, massive show today. Mm-hmm. Should we just mention a couple of the, the, the key players? Sure. So we'll have Chris doing news headlines first, of course. Um, and at 7.15, we're going to be talking to Apsara Sabaratnam, who's the Greens candidate. She's going to be talking about her election, the policies she's pushing for, and um, about representation of women in politics in general. Um, then at about 7.30, we've got Lan Duckdale from Queer Space, who's yes. coming in to talk about Queer Space in general, but also two of their programs called A Place at the Table and the Polaris Mentoring Project. So we've gone back to the regular monthly chat with Queer Space, which That's is right. really exciting. Yeah. Um, and then after that, we'll be joined by Candy Bowers. Yay! Who, um, unfortunately, we, we didn't get to speak to last week, so we're super excited to talk to her today about some new... Stuff she's working on, mm. which sounds really exciting. Yeah. And then at about 8, um, Zoya will be talking to Alia Ahmed. This is a pre-record um, that Zoya did a couple of days ago, which is really exciting. It's about Democracy in Colours fundraiser. Um, and then at about 8.10 or 8.15, George? 
We will be talking to Roxy Moore, who ha- is fast becoming a Tuesday Breakfast regular, mm. uh, with two other guests who will be speaking at uh, the community election yarn event that will be held tomorrow for First Nations people and people of colour to talk about uh, what different uh, candidates for Cooper have to say about issues that are important to them. So that would be good to chat about that event. Big show. But, um, Chris? Amazing. Um Okay, so top of the top of the uh, pile of news today, there's a lot, and it's um, all very sad. So apologies oh. in advance. Um, okay. <laughs> the major, one of the major ones today is um, that there are a new UN report came out, and it's kind of hard to describe because it's so massive. But it's like uh, it's one of the biggest kind of like ecological studies. I think I think they've looked through anything, and they basically found that one million species are currently at risk around the world. Mm. It's completely different species and um we're all humanity's under threat because of the, the sheer massive loss of biomass and i think some of the the figures here are staggering and it's very hard to translate to radio because it's um it takes into coral reefs and it takes into you know australia's incredible extinction rate that we've already uh yeah we've already killed so many animals and we've also uh got a lot on the endangered list and yeah it's it's definitely worth a flick through it's um it's staggering. It's very depressing reading, but it's also very important. Uh, on a micro level, there's less. This is probably more manageable than the other one, but uh, a lot of major cities in Australia right now are in drought conditions. Mm. So I think um, Sydney and Darwin are the two big ones that people... Some study found that people in Sydney don't know it at the moment, but they are down 40% their water levels than where they were last year, which is massive. And Darwin is also down like 30% or something. And Melbourne and Brisbane are also very low as well. So we're about two-thirds of where we were last year as well. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think at the moment there a bunch of different state governments are putting out reminders that just, like, we should start doing the water conservation stuff that we were doing during the Millennium Drought about 10 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, things like leaky taps, short showers, stuff like that. Mm. They're just, they've started rolling those out very slowly, but we may see more of that as we go forward. Uh, the other one is last night we had Bill Shorten on Q&A, which uh, was very interesting. We finally got to see him kind of combat. He was very he was very interesting. He got, like, he got... One of the big criticisms, I think, with Bill is that uh, everybody's like, oh, you're just this, like, shapeless form, you know? Like, you kind of... <laughs> we think you've got something, but, like, you just you see, like, a big slab of tofu. So, <laughs> and and Bill, I, Bill be shortcake as first dog in the moon likes to call yes. it. Yeah, like I think the name just like flicks every yeah. t- like no one can remember him because he's just a big yeah. I mean, you're a political journalist, so that's expert opinion. Yeah, right? no. When I think of him, I just get a big you know what is that JPEG that like nothing comes up thing. I think okay. that's another first time. Maybe we'll, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. um, but no, he was actually re- like I I don't I know Bill, Bill Shorten fan, but I think he actually did a very good job of handling the Q&A, and um, he showed a bit more. I'm not sure if this was a direction, if Labour told him, or if he was just normally like this, but he had a lot more fire than he normally does. Like, he got kind of like stuck into Tony Jones a lot. He was mm. it was kind of good to see him be a little bitchy, I think is all I'm saying. Like, he got really, like... Um, I shouldn't say bitchy, sorry. Um, uh, he got very, like, yeah, in, in Tony's face with a lot of stuff, and also, like, he talked... Like he was very good at managing the crowd. He got even people who didn't like his policies. I thought he did a, um, I thought he did a fairly, a fairly good job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one, the other, the fourth story, and it's not particularly fun, but it's uh, 
it's a little weird, is we're going to see a lot more uh, quote-unquote fake news ads coming out the next two weeks. And some, I think that was one of the front-page stories today was uh, that we're starting to see that on like all sorts of mm. social media, mm. uh, including WeChat. So it's like, it's, uh, yeah, it's just going to spike the next two weeks. But I think like this, with two weeks left to the election, mm. we're going to see a lot of it. Yeah, and we just wanted to quickly mention the... Um, that last week, the Court of Arbitration for Sport, um, which is International Sports Hires Court, ruled that um, athletes, such as um, Casta Semenya, could be banned unless they took medication to reduce their testosterone levels, which has been a huge topic um, since the ruling was handed down a bit about what it meant for <clears throat> intersex athletes, but also what it meant overall about policing women's bodies, especially black and brown bodies and, and how they're policed differently from any other um, bodies, but, you know, especially in the sports field. So we were going to do a little bit of a discussion about that today, but I think the show doesn't really allow for that to happen, so we might come back and talk about it next week. Yes, yeah, I think good yeah. to make time to have a proper discussion, definitely, mm. a really, really important topic. Yeah, but if yeah. listeners are, you know, haven't really heard much about it, uh, we would strongly encourage you to have a read of all these um, great articles in The Guardian and the conversation about... Um, about that ruling, but also what it means in a broader conversation, and then we can revisit that next week. Cool. Thanks for the headlines. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Yeah. No, thanks. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family, and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We are, going to, we are so excited to play this. This is a new K8 track. It just came out. It's called Miss Shiny. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR, funded by the City of Yarra. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We're very pleased now to be joined on the phone live by Apsara Sabaratnam, who's a Greens candidate, um, and who'll be talking about um, her journey to join the Greens and the, the policies and reform she's pushing for, and uh, we're very excited to talk to her. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Apsara. Oh, thanks, Anya. Thanks for having me on the radio today. Absolutely. Our pleasure. So, Apsara, tell us about yourself and why you decided to join the Greens. Um, yeah. So uh, just a little bit of a background about myself. I uh, was born in Sri Lanka. I'm a Sri Lankan Tamil, and um, my parents were lucky enough to get us out of Sri Lanka prior to the uh, civil war commencing in, 2000, uh, in 1983. So we left Sri Lanka in 77 and uh, moved to Africa. So I grew up in mm. my formative years were 
spent in Africa, so I grew up in Zambia and Zimbabwe, and um, came to Australia in 1990, um, and came here because um, my parents were looking for somewhere where we could uh, spend the rest of our lives, have um, you know relative safety, because um, Sri Lanka was still very unsafe in 1990, um, and um, also looking for somewhere that I could actually complete my uh, university degree and, uh, you know, and call home. And so we came here in 1990, which is fantastic. And multiculturalism was something that was a bit of a buzzword. Mm. People were really embracing that concept. Um, but in, um, you know, from about 1996, we saw a huge shift in the political discourse in this country, uh, largely uh, one that was driven by um, John Howard and uh, Pauline Hanson, and, uh, which are really shifting politics in this country towards the right. Um, and it was really quite frightening for, for myself because, I mean, not just myself personally, but knowing that a lot of new migrants and asylum seekers especially yeah. were effectively being used as political football to uh, divert our attention away from the real problems this nation is facing. And um, they don't have... uh, Migrants and and, uh, asylum seekers have uh, very little uh, airspace in our uh, mainstream media and have very little ability to be able to put forward their case. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons why... I decided to join the Greens just because they had very strong asylum seeker policies. Mm. And what made you decide to run for the Senate seat this time around? Um, so I've been very active now in the Greens for uh, since 2013. So I've been voting Greens uh, for qu- quite a long time. I started voting Greens in about 2007. Um, I actually voted for the first time in Australia in 1996. Mm. That was, um, And so... Um, I didn't really know much about the Greens until 2007 and really only then started to understand how important it was to actually sit down, read uh, uh, the policies of a political party and only make an informed decision once you understand what you're voting for. Mm. Um, So I joined the Greens in 2013 and I think there are waves of people who joined the Greens at different uh, points in Australian political history and I think... uh, uh, Tampa was a huge one for the Greens, um, 2013, especially with uh, um, John uh, with um, Tony Abbott. Uh, a lot of people joined the Greens then, um, and you know became quite politically active, and that was a turning point for me. Um, Tony Abbott, and I say this over and over again, he's a neo-colonialist and a and a um, neoliberal, and he is effectively a product of our neoliberalism in this country, and it's very frightening to see someone like him come to power, but that's something that we should have all seen coming because of the kind of neoliberal policies that have been driven um, over the previous 40 years in this country. Um, So that's when I became really active, and I'm now the uh, Secretary of the Multicultural Greens in the party, and the reason I'm um, doing that as well is because I would like to, for us to reach out to multicultural communities and also to make the green space a lot less white. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a <clears throat> collective nodding of heads in agreement in the studio. Um, <laughs> Absara, what sort of policies? I mean, based on your experience in, in you know, in, in your work and in your life experience, um, what sort of policies and reform are you pushing for or hoping to see? Well, we are proud unionists, mm. and um, for me, I'm also a staff representative of my workplace, and uh, I can I see the power of collective bargaining. I'm, uh, I, I was involved in my first ever collective bargaining uh, last year, which really was very empowering, and it's very powerful for us to be able to do that together. Mm. Um, the Greens have a number of really amazing industrial relations policies, and I think it's really sad that uh, we don't actually get the airtime to be able to talk about some of the things that we are, we are advocating for. And um, for me, fighting casualisation is a huge issue. I work in um, the education sector, mm. uh, higher education sector, and we know that something like 72% of uh, university staff are actually casual, mm. which is just frightening when you think about it, compared to our society, which is about 21%. Um, the other issue that I have a, that I think we really should be fighting against is uh, the rise of sham contracts. And so, you know, gig, the, the gig economy is here to stay, mm. but we also need to recognise that a number of people who are effectively being put onto these um, uh, sham contracts are actually, um, the number of people who are being put on these sham contracts are effectively employees and shouldn't be see, uh, considered to be contractors. Um, the other thing that also, I mean, I found really frustrating last year when we were doing our bargaining was mm-hmm. the the right to strike is something that is very important. It's fundamental in our um, in as, as workers. Mm-hmm. When we were bargaining, this is something that I found really uh, annoying is that we were able to apply to for the right to strike because we were outside of an um, uh, enterprise agreement. Mm. But it took six weeks for mm. us to actually be able to get the go-ahead, the green light to do that. And um, we were restricted as to what we could actually do. Mm. And that in itself, I think, is if you think about it from a point of view of the human rights, a right to actually be able to tell an employer someone who is in a very powerful position that what they're doing is not right and not being uh, for it being so restrictive I think is terrible mm. and the other thing I think we need to consider I mean I teach at university and I hear this over and over again is um, the issue with minimum wage first of all our minimum wage has not kept up with inflation mm-hmm. and secondly many of my students are not earning the minimum wage mm. Mm. So these are things that, you know, I would like to advocate for. And uh, the other things that I would really, I'm really big on, I'm part of a group called Stand Together Against Racism. I'm not sure if you're aware of yeah. this group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we um, we do a lot of um, uh, mass actions and um, forums and things like that. And for me, um, you know, the racism and the rise of Islamophobia in this country is incredibly frightening. Mm. Um, it's something that we need to address and the fact that it is actually sanctioned and we even have the leaders of this country um, which is Scott Morrison himself um, being able to get away with uh, 
targeting uh, uh, minority groups is a massive issue and it's something that I definitely want us to be pushing for. Mm. And the Greens have put forward um, a Charter of Rights, which I think is something that we should really be uh, advocating for. We're the only democratic country in this world mm. that does not have one. Mm. And we can see what that actually means for our First Nations people. We can see what it means for our asylum seekers. You know, what we're doing to our asylum seekers is so criminal. Mm. And, um, you know, we keep demanding, and I have a place on the uh, uh, on the international stage, especially the UN, and yet we don't even have a charter of rights. So I think that's something that we should be advocating for too. Yeah, absolutely. And just getting back to your comment about making, um, you know, the, the parliament less white, um, I, you know, can you talk to me about your thoughts regarding the space women occupy in Australian politics currently, especially women of colour like yourself, yep. and how to make this space more accessible? Yep. Um, so, I mean, we have to remember this is something that uh, is actually quite frightening. And I did uh, get some st- uh, statistics about it because I just thought it's really important for t- us to see just how um, in- insidious it is. So mm-hmm. in our 44th Parliament, um, something like 76% of all people in Parliament are Anglo-Celtic. Mm-hmm. And only 4% mm-hmm. of uh, parliamentarians are from a non-European background. So we are so underrepresented when you think about it. Uh, when we, when we really should be, uh, we're about 10% of the population, mm. and yet we only make up 4% of um, our parliament. Uh, it's not, um, it's, it, it, it doesn't cut it because effectively we're not being represented there. Mm. And when it comes down to women, I mean, if you think about, uh, it's something like, um, we have something like 29% of everyone in, parla- uh, in the House of Reps is uh, women and about 30, nearly 40% in the Senate are women. So women are also underrepresented in Parliament. Mm-hmm. And when we look at it then uh, and we say, okay, well, that's really not good um, because, okay, there's a very small portion of women in, uh, in the House of Reps and uh, the Senate, and then when we actually look at it from a non-English speaking background, it even drops further. It's something like 6% of people, uh, of, uh, people in the House of Reps are from a non-English speaking background and only 14% are, uh, in the Senate. So this is effectively, uh, is, it shows you, um, that we are in a, um, in a representative democracy, yet it's, Parliament is not representing us. Mm-hmm. And, Anglo-Celtic men who make up a very small percentage of Australian population um, are effectively in uh, very powerful positions in this country. Mm. And they are, uh, you know, we can see what that means. If, uh, they, they're quite happy to have the um, status quo maintained and um, have no interest in advocating or advancing the interests of any other minority groups. Yeah, yeah. And look, we can keep talking about it. And thank you for the statistics, because sometimes numbers are the best way to sort of um, explain the truth. Um, And like I said, we can keep talking about it, but unfortunately (laughs) we're running out of time. But thank you so much for joining us today, Apsara. Yeah. And all the best. I know. (laughs) 
I, so I think it's really important. I mean, I will just let you go on there, but I think it's really important, as you know, that we need women of colour in Parliament because mm. it's role modelling. If we don't have role models, we don't have people who, you know, people can look up to and say, this is something I can actually do myself. Mm. It, it really seems so far removed for us. And we need, and this is something that I keep talking about mm. over and over again, we can't just have people in power. We also need to be creating... Um, Pipelines, pipelines which effectively uh, enable women of colour mm-hmm. to be mentored and supported so that they can actually rise through the ranks. Mm-hmm. And this is to all political parties, rise through the ranks and therefore be, yeah. be put in positions where they can actually end up in positions of power. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for that, Apsara. Thanks again. I have to get the car service for the big drive on Friday. I'll make sure the kids are ready. I won't forget mozzie spray this time. Oh, and we can't forget to vote before we go. What? The federal election is on Saturday the 18th of May and all Australian citizens age 18 years and over must vote. But if you know you won't be able to make it to a polling place on election day, you may be able to vote early. To find out how, go to aec.gov.au or call 132326. It's our vote and our future. Authorised by the Electoral Commissioner Canberra. A 3CR supporter. We Need to Pay the Rent is a fundraiser for warriors of the Aboriginal resistance featuring the Pretty Littles, Worst Nurse, Ute Root, No Sister, Face Face and a heap more. Come join us on Kulin Nation land to give back. It's well overdue. We Need to Pay the Rent. Saturday, May the 18th at the Tote from 4pm. Tickets $20. Available from the Tote website, thetotehotel.com. Free or discounted tickets for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Contact organisers online to arrange. A 3CR supporter. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family. And even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR with George, myself, Anya, Zoya and Chris, who's still in the studio. <laughs> and is waving frantically at us. Um, next up, we're going to be talking to Lan Duckdale. Lan is in the studio with us. Lan works at Queer Space. Um, and Lan is here to talk to us about Queer Space in general, but also about two very important programs that they are currently doing at the moment. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. Lan, for listeners who don't know about Queer Space, mm-hmm. what is Queer Space? So, as the name sort of suggests, Queer Space is for queer people. Um, it's a part of Drummond Street Services, and we started around 10 years ago recognising that we needed a space run by queer people for queer people. Mm-hmm. So, we do we have counselling services, we run a bunch of groups, um, and we sort of look at the person or a family and their whole context sort of wrapping around um, everything that's in that person's life. 
Perfect. And you're here to talk to us about two programs. Um, Tell us firstly about this program called A Place at the Table. What is it? Who can access it? How much does it cost? All the details. Yeah, cool. So A Place at the Table um, is one of two mentoring programs. Um, It's the one that I'm coordinating and it's about families mentoring other families, which I think traditionally mentoring is sort of a one-on-one sort of thing and can be maybe oriented around um, a goal that you have maybe in your career or something like that. Mm. But we sort of noticed a gap for LGBTQIA plus uh, people um, and that there's sort of a disconnection from your family of origin or your chosen family even sometimes. And so the idea is that a family, whatever that looks like, it can be housemates, it can be your friends, it can be uh, a nuclear family, anything really is there to support another family to strengthen um I guess the experiences of isolation that we experience uh, from our families. That's beautiful. Mm. Yeah, and um, so how much does it cost? Oh, yeah, good question. (laughs) It's free. We're really lucky we've got some funding for this, um, and it goes until June 2020. So at the moment we're putting a lot of energy into making sure this program really reflects the people it's going to be for. Um, So we're working with a bunch of co-design groups. We've got a First Nations group, a youth advisory group, and a partner group that are leading uh, what the program is going to be about. Mm. Um, And, yeah, the idea is that it's free for people to be a part of it and we can support how those uh, mentorships sort of evolve. Mm. Is there some sort of an application process or how do they get in? Yeah, Yeah, uh, just go to the website. So if you look up Queer Space in Mm. Google, um, we've got a bunch of programs that are listed on there and if you find a place at the table, um, there's a form at the bottom and you can just register your details and I'll get in contact with you. Perfect. Um, Tell us about the other program. Yeah. Mm. So um, Polaris is our individual mentoring program. So a very similar premise um, to what I've just described, but it's one-on-one. At this stage, we're figuring out the age range, but we're going to try and make it as broad as possible. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be someone who's older mentoring someone who's younger. It can be uh, intergenerational. Mm. And it's sort of based around skills more so than, yeah, like a career focus or something like that. So I think through um, learning how to do someone's makeup or learning stick and poke tattoos, for example, or Mm. just learning how to cook, things like that builds that connection with somebody, um, which sort of mitigates the risks that we experience as LGBTQIA plus communities. Mm. That's amazing because you sort of think of mentoring programs and then there's a particular image that you have of that older person teaching a younger person on how to build a career, but there's so many other ways... Um, about how mentoring could work. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so maybe can you talk to us about, I mean, there's, there seems to be a real focus on having these sorts of mentorship programs. Mm-hmm. And why are mentorship programs in particular so important for the queer yeah. community? I think if, if we're being honest, the resources we have, there's not enough for the needs that are out there. So it's another way of looking at what we can offer Um, to each other as a community and mentoring happens organically anyway like the way I grew up was um, like I didn't really have a good connection with my family so when I connected with my friends I felt like I had that family around me Mm -hmm. or I had someone to look up to and so I guess it's taking that idea that the community is already doing these things and maybe formalizing it a bit more having some funding behind it Mm. um, when counseling isn't always an option Um, or maybe attending a group isn't something you're comfortable with. So taking that sort of social approach to it um, is, I guess, one of the ideas. Mm. And the real identification of chosen families and and not defining what families are for certain communities. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Very exciting. Yeah. 
Um, are there any other exciting projects in queer space that we should be? <laughs> are you not allowed to tell me? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, we've always got new things on the go and I think that's what's great about queer space. We're trying to acknowledge the gaps and really listen to um, what people are saying and needing. Um, mm. But these two are sort of the main ones that uh, we're working on at the moment. But if you look at the website or if you um, jump on our socials, there's always events and things being run, especially in queer space youth. They've always got um, things happening, I think, weekly or monthly. Um, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. And just one, one last time, just about logistics. How do people get in contact with queer space? Yeah, so just um, pop it into Google, go on our website, and um, there's, some, there's forms on there that you can sign up with or you can give us a call as well. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming oh, in today. Thanks for having me. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That track is called Deeper. It's by St. Carver. It's my new favourite song this week. Just to let everyone know. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, George. (laughs) You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio with George, Zoya and myself, Anya. In the studio now, we have the incredible, (laughs) amazing... Candy Bowers. Hello. Hi, Candy. Hi. Thank you for coming in. No worries. Candy. Tell us about your show. Tell us everything. <laughs> oh, where do I start? Um, look, yeah, I'm doing my final show for Victoria. I've been on a little tour uh, with Regional Victoria, RAV, uh, which is extraordinary. Uh, you know, it's just a crazy journey I've been on with this show, Australian Booty. I wrote it 10 years ago, mm. revived it for a feminist theatre festival in Sydney, and then some friends said, you should put it up for touring around Australia, which is an interesting concept because... Um, doing radical work in regional towns is mm. uh, was always going to be a challenge and interesting. And, it, and it, lots of things happened that I didn't see and other things that I thought would happen and all that sort of thing. But um, it's, it's, um, I've just had such a, a crazy um, career that it sort of fits mm. quite well into it. And, of course, like playing out in Traralgon and Horsham and... Uh, then we went to Gympie and some crazy s- specific places in regional Queensland and 
Tasmania and it was really interesting. Um, people are uh, sort of, it's a mix of, of fear but also hunger. Mm. So a lot of folks were like, I just never heard from anybody like you. I was like, all right. And there's this sort of um, thing that happens when you get to do a really intimate work where you, um, you you sort of get to transform folks' concepts in a more deep way. Uh, somebody asked me from the press the other day whether people come defensive or, you know, like... And it's interesting because I, I look at my copy and I think, what what would they be defensive about? Mm. And then you realise, oh, yeah, that's right, I'm a black queer woman. <laughs> Uh, that people, just the very essence of you existing or being on a microphone or being central is confronting mm. in Australia because it uh, doesn't happen. And um, and so a lot of the feedback I get is around that sort of big gap that we have mm. in our storytelling spaces. But also for me, it feels like there's this amazing explosion going on, like being a part of growing up African in Australia, the, the new publication... Uh, and mm. seeing folks like Wani doing his show around the country, uh, you know, just the the very essence of almost everybody in that book that mm. I know also performing, mm. um, Kirsty Marilla and um, Hope, and who's here at yeah. CCR, like yeah. it's just really exciting. Yeah. Uh, I'm 40, so I've seen a lot, you know, in the last 20 years, and there's just been this real amazing rev up so even doing Australian booty I was like joking around I should do it every decade just to you know get a pulse of where we're at Mm. Um, and where we're at it's quite extraordinary like when I first wrote the show Facebook was very new Instagram was very new and Twitter was very new and for people that are like oh yeah so what for black women in particular those things have brought visibility and connection through our community we've been able to speak truth to power you know a lot of the viral campaigns that happen worldwide fees must fall black lives matter that comes out of our ability to for the first time be in a public arena Mm. and be vocal Mm. i know i've been quite vocal to the theater community Mm. uh in melbourne and seen some interesting changes uh one that was just very specific was I was getting really pissed off that I wasn't seeing enough of the people of colour cast in plays, particularly at Melbourne Theatre Company, on the posters. Mm. I investigated that. A lot of people told me in different ways. Essentially, we put some data into the the computer, which computer, and it spits (laughs) out that less people people be less willing to buy tickets to shows with people of colour or people with disabilities on the poster. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So you're kowtowing to bigots. Great. I've got an idea. Why don't you just put people of colour on every poster? Mm. What happens if you've got, like, the main image, you know? And in the past two years, guess what? Uh, And I've been able to see more of those um, folks that, you know, the few folks that get to work in those spaces more visible. Now what I want to see is a change in everything. Mm. Boards, um, artistic directorship, the teams that make all the decisions because, yeah, it's one thing to have representation on the stage, uh, but, like, I just um, directed Fucking A at the VCA, which is a play by Susan Laurie Parks. Mm -hmm. She's James Baldwin's protege, just to give you a bit of an idea of the level of political sort of mm-hmm. fire in her work and it was it's sort of like handmaids but with a black central mm. uh, storyline and perspective and I'd say to my students so 
you're getting a play written by a woman from the from the African diaspora and directed by a woman from the African diaspora. Uh, and most of your, like I'd say, 90% like mine, uh, schooling has been in a very white patriarchal sort of um, context. So just those tools you have in your pocket now to have gone, if you ever, you know, and they, hopefully many of them will, you know, get a script and it's a pilot and there's a black female director like Liesl Tommy who's, like, doing incredible things, uh, directing a lot of The Waking Dead and everything, but got a Tony nomination for a, a play she directed Lupita Nyong'o in or mm. even you see an executive producer that's a black woman, which, thank fuck, in Hollywood right now that's happening more and yeah. more. Um, you've got a Susan Laurie Parks in your pocket and you're then an Australian actor with that cultural understanding and that's a really wonderful thing mm. um, in the mix, but also just... Like, I was fighting with some of the other faculty because I'm like, they never, ever, ever have to pick up another piece written by a white man if they don't want to. They've studied that now for this long and their lives have been, in, you know, completely marinated in that. So now if they just want to be curious about everything else in the world, they could be. And that's, and they're like, oh, but they're preparing them for the industry. I'm like, okay. So there's a political problem there for me because I go, well, what if the industry is a monoculture and it isn't, it doesn't have space for everybody? So rather than prepare them for an industry that has, that's con- it's a concerning industry, um, why not prepare them to be the artist they want to be mm-hmm. um, without bounds, without um, <clears throat> sort of notions of, of, of what success is because if success is compromise, assimilation <laughs> and, you know, working in a colonised space, then I don't want that success. And why shouldn't the students be um, provoked to that position too? Mm. Um, why do we only support uh, one sort of experience into the industry is mm. my question. And I'm also like, you're going to bring a radical black feminist into the institution. What do you think I'm going to do? Go, yeah. oh, yes, yes, study white men. Like, yeah. you know? So it's sort of an interesting phenomena, uh, the idea of um, challenging what success is. Mm. And, and often I'd say in class, like, which industry? Which industry are you preparing them for? Mm. The one that I'm a part of that... You know, where Hot Brand Honey is still touring the world, where mm. Hannah Gatsby is a superstar, where, mm. um, you know, Issa Rae and <laughs> Marseille Martin, who's on the show that I'm working on in L.A., mm. has just become the youngest executive producer in Hollywood, a young black woman. Like, which industry? Uh, and so it's a, it's a challenge, I think, too, to the current gatekeepers and the folks, you know, that are at running schools and, and in the industry that perhaps their thinking is outdated mm. because it's always based on success, right? Who's, yeah. who's doing well, who's and doing well. And it's a comment on the larger political discourse generally, isn't it? Like which institution are you part of and which institution does your success, you, you know, is measured in as well. And that's, that's really, really, really suffocating. Mm. Um, the work, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, to sort of be making work in this space and later on in the year, um, my show, One the Bear, A Fairy Tale for the Hip Hop Generation, mm-hmm. is going to be at the Art Centre in the Opera House. And that's exciting. There's a paper being written on it about it being um, sort of breakthrough, decolonised theatre for young people. Mm-hmm. And I sort of feel like, you know, it's interesting making work, you know, in that work it's two women of colour um, 
with an allegory of colonisation and, and celebrity and sort of the stuff that young teenage girls think about. Uh, being able to put that in that space is, is a disruption in itself. It's mm-hmm. really interesting. And then making sure the folks that are in the room are who I wrote the show for, that's mm-hmm. also a disruption. Uh, how about getting it reviewed by people mm. that look like me or come from my background? Another disruption. So it's really interesting, like, yeah, what what is radical? And and my friend who's in, um, Ruth D'Souza, she's a, sort of an expert in cultural safety across across many forms, but health. And I talked to her a bit about, got, got her to coach me a bit while I work in these spaces because they're hard to work in. Mm. And she said, look, there's no such thing as nirvana. So you have to every day work out, you know, what sort of transformative stuff you're up to and why. And with Australian beauty, it was tough at times. Mm-hmm. Like you're out in Terrelgan going, why? <laughs> why are we here? Um, what is happening? And um, and then oh, I'm also Abyss, who's here at Hip Sister Hop, is oh, my yeah. featured DJ. Mm-hmm. And they were like... Those people really needed to hear that tonight, you know, yeah. and and there's always like these really interesting moments and I forget I'm radical because it's just my life. Mm. And so then, you know, I forget and um, people are like, whoa, yeah, that's just the biggest concept ever. What do you mean? Mm. You know, like I say, um, what would happen if, you know, women and people who identify as female just absolutely love themselves? Um what would happen and because I've just done the show in really conservative environments I was like oh I better work out what people are watching I'm like okay what is marriage at first sight what is the bachelor oh wow (laughs) wow I didn't realize how bad it was right and I was like you know yeah like primetime tv yeah maybe the bachelor couldn't possibly exist in such a world yeah and um and it's yeah, I forget, like, because you go, is this modern day? Like, is this real? And, wow, people are so into watching this and this, the sort of, you know, sort of nutra-sweet mm. superficiality of it all. And I, it was interesting, I watched a bit of the one that Sophie Monk was on uh-huh. and I sort of got caught in this weird cultural thing where it's like the accents are really broad and straight, like, you know, oh, she's a good girl, Sophie, she's a great girl. I was like, girl even, wow. <laughs> and like, yeah, oh, just, I'm just needing, I just want to. And, and I was like, okay, this is a culture that's a part of Australian culture, but it's not the full Australian culture. And you know, see that, you can see that 24-7 and you can't see the other parts. And so I guess with Australian booty, it's a bit of that for people that maybe live in that space, mm. um, but also for the rest of us that live in all the other spaces, like for everyone else. Mm. I, I know when I did um, the show out at Wyndham, there was an older white lady in a in a um, wheelchair, and she just sort of stuck around, and I thought people kept worrying her way so she could leave because we all sort of danced it out at the end. Mm. And she was like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. And she's just watching, and her friend's sort of sitting there, and I was like, oh... Are they waiting for me? So I went up and said hi. And she goes, oh, hello. <laughs> she was waiting for me to come and say hello. And she said, um, <clears throat> thank you so much. That was an amazing show. Uh, and I've never felt included before. And you included me. And that was really beautiful. And I thought maybe I say two lines about ableism in the show and about 
um, what's acceptable in as a Hollywood sort of lead, romantic lead. You couldn't be this, you couldn't be that, you couldn't be in a wheelchair, you know. Mm. And she's really moved. And then after the show, some of the texts came and said to me, it's, it's high praise coming from her. She's usually really grumpy and, and um, opinionated and judgmental. I was like, maybe because nobody's ever fucking included her. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And I was like, it's not that radical to actually acknowledge we're all here. Mm. We're all in the room. It makes space for more people. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, just even watching those shows and going, look at their bodies. Like, Mm. weird. It's just one sort of thing. Yeah. And we should have asked this right at the beginning of the the chat, but Australian Booty, can you talk to us about the show? What is it? What what do people... Yeah. Um, it's it's like most comedy. It's mm. autobiographical. Um, it's sort of a, a, a started. I wrote it when I was thirty, just to redefine that era, like because I'd done all this stuff in my twenties, mm-hmm. and then I was like, okay, what do I feel, and how do I, why do I even exist? A lot of people would say to me, oh, you're a unicorn. How do you even exist? And I thought I'd write a show about that, mm-hmm. and a lot of backstory. Um, and just what it takes to be me in this space and, and to own, to own this space inside of my skin and my body and my thighs and my ass and all that stuff. Uh, so there's music, there's, um, spoken word, lots of satire, um, a lot of feminist, um, subversion of, of hip hop that I grew up with and loved. It's kind of looking back and looking forward and trying to like work out, you know, the same old stuff like bad feminist stuff mixed with, Mm. um, you know, what I see the potential um, of everybody is and myself in these spaces and and what's possible, but really speaking to how growing up in Australia has affected me Mm. um, and the jump-off points, I guess, about that too. So interracial dating, you know, Mm. dating bogans and, and first day of primary school stuff, uh, all the way to just like unpacking how you deal with really misogynist music that's your culture. Um, I, I did a review of um, She Begat This, the 20 years since the miseducation of Lauren Hill mm-hmm. um, and Joan Morgan and there was a lot in there about how, you know, black and brown women were coming to terms with the fact that the, that the form they loved and had built was problematic. Mm. And um, really interesting stuff around they'd built this party and then they were cornered off from it in that moment where hip-hop has um, turned into, you know, capitalised and consumed up. And, um, you know, there were like all these Barry Middle classes and Beckys were going through to the backstage and there was, you know, they were, they were there was a no pass for, for those women that had created the party. And, and yeah, so then the usual black patriarchy and all mm. that stuff. So I guess it's really rooted in, in a lot of, um, that perspective and, uh, but plenty of silliness yeah. as well. I think a part of, uh, what I've come to, which has been really interesting. I think Audrey Lord talks about it a lot. Everybody will want to define you. Everybody, you know, mm. the white community, the black community, the queer community, the straight community. Everybody will want to say that, you know. Um, what are you in comparison to this? Oh, that's interesting. Why aren't you more this or more that? And I think at the end of the day, it's it's also about sort of, in her words, to define myself for myself, but also to not, I'm not leaving anything out. Mm. which is <laughs> at times I'm like, oh, this is confronting for me. But um, 
yeah, I want to show the the reality of being, of you know, the sort of um, nuances and the and the other parts, the complexities, mm-hmm. uh, because it's fun and it's real. And yeah, I've got to like. Uh, not just sort of say, I've been perfect. I haven't ever had, you know, really political driven and and perfect sort of positions and Mm. stuff like that. So I want to get in there and it gets sticky and it's, you know, it's sex positive and body positive and all those things. So uh, it's interesting. And and like when I was in Gympie, I think this is what I mean by also being um, surprised, a very sort of white middle class woman with like pearls and very conservatively dressed came up and she was really teary and she said look I was just emotional the entire show you know and I said oh that's nice (laughs) and she said yeah because even from your welcome where you included non-binary people um I was I was really moved because my child's non-binary and it was really beautiful and sort of I can't even imagine what that experience would be like living out there. So she's just like, I wish I'd have brought them. They're on a sports carnival weekend or something, you know, like, (laughs) but, you know, there was a lot of people that said they wish they brought their children with Mm, them, which I really love. Yeah. Yeah. We can keep talking to you, (laughs) you know that. (laughs) Um, But unfortunately, we're running out of time. But, Candy, when's the next show? Okay, so the final show for Victoria mm. is this Friday night. Okay. It's out in St Albans. Go on, do yourself a favour. <laughs> get out there, get into the West, decide where you're going to eat. Like, it's it's lovely. Uh, it's where my parents first came and settled as um, political refugees mm. in the 70s. So I think the whole area is sort of super special. The theatre is gorgeous, the Bowery Theatre. And um, it's going to be an intimate night. It's nice because I do such big, high-pressure stuff. Mm. Uh, yeah, so this Friday at 7.30 at the, the Bowery in St Albans. We'll all be there. <laughs> See you then. And um, can I ask one final question? Yes. What's your favourite Lizzo track? Oh. <laughs> Not that we stalked your Instagram or anything. <laughs> Look, there's so many that are so good. I mean, because I love you, it's excellent, Juice is excellent, and oh. also... Um, Good as hell is really good, and mm. all the stuff coming out now. Don't ask me; she's my patrona, so <laughs> every part of her. What um, are you going to go for? Uh, should we go for good as hell? Yeah. yeah. Let's yeah. Do it. Let's do it. Right. Thanks, Candy. I do my head Baby, how you feeling? Are you 18 years and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Good morning, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm Zoya, brand new presenter and host. I hope I'm doing a good enough job. Um, in the studio, we have George and Anya, and we still have Chris, 
our uh, news representative. And yeah. um, you heard before from Candy Bowers, and after that, one of her favourite Lizzo tunes, Good as Hell, although it seems as though every Lizzo tune is her favourite Lizzo tune. <laughs> um, right now, we have an interview that I did um, this weekend with Alia Ahmed, who uh, is part of an organisation I volunteer with, Democracy in Colour. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast. I'm Zoya. Today, I'm joined in the studio by Alia Ahmed, a queer Pakistani woman who works as a campaigner. Alia heads up the fundraising team for Democracy in Colour, a national racial justice organisation led by and for people of colour. Hi, Alia. How are you? Hi, Zoya. How's it going? I'm very well, thank you. Um, now, I know, I know a bit about Democracy in Colour because I work with you in yep. the space, but why don't you tell me a little bit about it? So we are, as you mentioned, a racial justice organization, um, and we do two main functions. So we run campaigns, and we also run programs. So the campaigns that we run are around, obviously, um, racial justice. So right now we're running one on the, Victor- uh, the federal election. Um, and the programs that we run are campaigning fellowships. So the first one that we had was a young Muslim campaigning fellowship, which is how I actually got involved in the organization, um, which was about a five-month um, fellowship program that taught young Muslims in Australia um, different campaigning skills and tools and how to get involved in the campaigning activist space. Um, but right now what we're doing is the federal election um, campaign uh, called Stronger Than Fear, which is against um, fighting against race baiting and, um, yeah, uh, politicians weaponizing people of color for their own political gain. So why don't you tell me a little bit more about race baiting? What is it? Why is it so important that we need to be considering an issue like this in this election? Sure. So um, race baiting is... Broadly speaking, is sort of when politicians are, or anyone, is weaponizing people of color and using the differences in um, the community and especially the racial, obviously the racial differences and diversity within communities um, to cre- uh, create and, I guess, fuel the fear that exists um, within the community. So you see politicians doing, like, for example, you've got politicians like Fred Janning, who's like, vilifying the Muslim community um, for, you know, various like terror attacks that are going on. Um, And it's essentially just using these differences to try and continue to divide the community. It's a classic case old example of the divide and conquer from the colonial era, um, the ongoing colonial era. Um, But yeah, so basically we're trying to fight against that because we're obviously a very diverse community and we're a lot stronger when we come together um, and we want to try and show politicians that if they are going to try and use these tactics and these um, race baiting tax t- tactics to divide us that we're at, they're going to have to pay for it at the ballot box. So you mentioned Fraser Anning um, mm. as an example of race baiting. Obviously, that's a rather overt version of race baiting. He's he's very, very vocal in in what he thinks about communities and what should happen in his in his rhetoric. But I know that there's other forms of race baiting that might be a little bit more underhanded, sort mm-hmm. of approaching dog whistling, I suppose. Yeah. Are you able to talk a bit more about that and some examples? Yeah, so, I mean, that's sort of, and that's actually the one that's more prevalent. Um, well, they're all both prevalent, but as in, that's the one that's kind of, I guess, um, that's the thing that just um, people completely forget about, but it's definitely very much there. So, 
one of um, those sort of underhanded things is that idea of you know the model the model minority. So you they'll divide the community by saying, oh look at this group of people of color who have like assimilated into the country so well and it blah 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 blah. And what we have here is a p- group of people who haven't assimilated. For example, the African gangs or something sort of similar like that. Now that's overtly it appears to be overtly racist, but what it's actually doing is dividing the community of people of color um, by trying to pin them against each other. And that is they're using that as a convenient distraction um, to confuse voters, like not to yet to confuse voters and to also distract them um, from issues while they are simultaneously, you know, cutting funding from um, public schools and hospitals. And they're just using these distractions uh, to, yeah, get, I guess, keep the communities um, fighting against each other and um, continuing to other the different communities. So that's sort of the thing that's um, underhandedly go- going on. And the idea of the model minority, I think, primarily is one of the big ones that plays in that sort of dog whistling politics. And what is Democracy in Colour doing this federal election? Obviously, the election's coming up in less than two weeks now. What is Democracy in Colour doing right now to tackle this issue of race baiting? So we are running a federal election campaign um, called Stronger Than Fear. And it we did we successfully ran one um, during the Victorian election in the marginal electorate of Frankston. Um, and it you know was a very marginal seat now it's become a labor seat because what we did was we had thousands of conversations through tactics such as door knocking and phone banking um so for the federal election where is it's an essentially an extension of this um campaign and it's called stronger than fear and we're tackling targeting the marginal electorates of banks in new south wales and latrobe in victoria in and speaking particularly about victoria Latrobe is a um, marginal electorate um, where the sitting MP is Jason Woods, and he is a firm Peter Dutton supporter. Um, has a big uh, has a big part of his narrative is involved around the African gang conspiracy or African gang tr- terror that seems to be going on that he seems to think is going on. Um, and what we're doing is every weekend, every Saturday, um, we are going into the marginal electorate and we are knocking on doors, calling people and having these meaningful conversations um, that I guess interrogate and draw out what matters to the community most. And what we found out is that what actually matters is that they just want to have access to resources and have um, the infrastructure in their communities um, continue to be funded and they want all this stuff in their communities and this false um, false panic that the current MP is trying to use is not actually um, present. So you think that these people that you're speaking with in these electorates aren't necessarily buying into this race baiting, but perhaps aren't also cognizant of the race baiting that's being done? Yeah, I think, and I think that is the thing is that, you know, um, ultimately the conversations that we're having with people um, is showing that a lot of people, um, obviously, what they care about is their community, and that's a very valid and important thing to think about. And um, when you're being fed lies and racial scapegoating um, tactics by people like Jason Wood, um, sometimes if that's the dominant narrative, then the community will obviously consume that. But after having a few conversations with people, you sort of have a have 
they take some time and they sort of realize, oh, actually, yeah, that's not actually the problem. The problem is that we want funding for our hospitals and our schools and our um, stadiums and all these different, you know, infrastructure things. Um, so, yeah, so I think and it just sort of highlights, I guess, the importance of having these meaningful one on one conversations. It's very time consuming, but it's very, very important. It's very effective in terms of understanding what matters to the community. And then also, I guess, talking about um, that common ground and what it is that matters the most to them. And, um, yeah, I guess drawing out what the, the race baiting situ- uh, tactics that the politicians are using. I imagine your organization functions largely on volunteers going out and doing, doing all this door knocking. If people listening wanted to get involved and help out, how would they be able to do that? Um, so we're actually, we don't accept any government funding. Um, we're fiercely independent and I think that's a really important thing to note because obviously, um, we want, we're member based. We want to, to do this for our community. Um, and so for, particularly for this federal election, um, the best way people, I guess, can help out the, the campaign is open to people of color and allies. So if people have some time, um, they can contribute and volunteer their time to do the door knocking and phone banking. Um, all the details are on our Facebook page um, and our various socials. But also, if they don't have the time and they have the means to, um, we would really love it if we could continue to get some volunteer funds, if we could continue to get some funds um, for our paid campaigners who are involved in this. So we've launched a crowdfunder called Stronger Than Fear as well. Um, all the details are in our, on our various socials. But, yeah, if, everyone, if anyone can chip in, that would be super great because it's really integral to kind of continuing these sort of projects. Um, and if, you know, if people don't have the means to do that, if they can just share it with other people, that would also make a massive difference. So your socials, we can find you at Democracy in Colour on Facebook. What yep. are you on Instagram and Twitter? Yep, so on Instagram, we are Democracy in Colour. On face- on Twitter, we are Democracy Colour. And our website is democracyincolour.org. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Alia, and good luck with your campaigning. Thank you. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. We've got our final interview for today's show. We have the pleasure of being joined in the studio by some fantastic guests. 
to start off with Roxy Moore, who's fast becoming a Tuesday Breakfast regular. <laughs> thanks for um, having me. Thanks for coming in. Uh, Roxy is a Noongar woman who works for Change the Records. Uh, we've also got Jessica Peters, who is a Wurundjeri woman and is working on the Free Our Sisters campaign. So important and so excited to hear more about that. <laughs> yep, thank you. Hello. And on the line as well, we have April, who is the daughter of Tanya Day. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, April. No worries, thank you. So perhaps we can start with you, Roxy. So Change the Record has organised a super important event tomorrow, is that correct? Yeah, so it is tomorrow night um, at the League, at the Aboriginal Advancement League um, in Thornbury. And um, we know in the election, like often Aboriginal people and people of colour can be invisible. So this is a really important chance for um, our communities to be able to have a voice directly to the candidates for the Cooper electorate. Um, so we've got um, Jed Carney, um, David Ristrom and Kath Larkin all confirmed to be there. And it's a real, it's a chance for um, Aboriginal people and people of colour um, to be able to talk about the issues that matter in their lives. Um, and to to be heard about the change that they want to see. And is that kind of the 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 reason why the event came about? Like recognizing that there was that gap and that uh, First Nations people and people of colour, their voices weren't being taken into consideration. Yeah, absolutely, and particularly because um, the issues we're going to talk about today around justice, so um, the mass incarceration of Aboriginal people in the justice system is, um, I think, one of the greatest human rights issues in Australia, um, and um, it's so connected to all of these other issues that are often talked about in the federal election, like housing, social security, um, and it's often about punishing um, people who are struggling to make ends meet. Um, so we're really trying to um, highlight the um, connections between all of those things and um, talk about the solutions that we want to see. Mm. So really recognising or asking those questions on who actually ends up in prison and why does that happen and, and yeah, making those important links. Yeah. Yeah. And so maybe this is a good kind of segue to you, Jess, in terms of um, your lived experience and understanding of prisons and why you're involved in the Free Our Sisters campaign and what's that all about. Okay, so the Free Our Sisters campaign is like a group of us women who have had a lived experience of the justice system. Um, we've come together to organise a group that can advocate on the women and hopefully um, bring the incarceration rate down just to help build a peer support network and work on like issues that keep arising from the prison. Like... It's still in the process of getting set up, so we don't actually have, like, a full set vision yet. We're hoping to... We're working with um, Debbie Kilroy. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yes. Um, so we're trying... <laughs> yeah, we're trying to set up something like the Sisters Inside down here. We're still yet to have it all planned out and stuff, but we have a few campaigns going on, a few ideas. Um, I... I haven't actually got, like, a full set vision for you as as of yet, but, like, what we aim to do, like, we went to... What was the roundtable discussion we went to the other day with Mark Dreyfus and that? And we highlighted some issues, like, about if you really want to bring the incarceration rate down, that I think they need to be looking at more things where kids in the system don't get culturally connected um, prior to them, you know, 
growing older and then getting into the wrong crowd and then eventually getting in trouble and getting locked up. So there's some issues that we would like to highlight to the community and hope to get on board and definitely the housing issue and people getting charged for like domestic violence and poverty and all that sort of stuff yeah Mm, yeah and then sort of I guess uh, in reading that uh, article in the Saturday paper which kind of talks about those stats around who actually is in prison and the short-term sentences and for those kinds of like crimes quote-unquote and kind of recognizing that you know that's completely unnecessary for people to be locked up for those reasons yeah well that yeah that's it's a really big thing and half the time like these ladies that are in there they're They've been in there for a number of amount of weeks, months on remand. They haven't even been sentenced yet or proven guilty. And in that in that time, they they lose their house. They might lose their children. So by the time they've got it out, they've lost everything and they've lost hope. So well, they don't really have much to go to. Mm. Yeah. And do you feel like people, as in the general public, doesn't really understand, like you know, hasn't had these conversations to really, because there's that sort of defensiveness around, oh, but we need prisons and we need yeah. this system. Do you think there is that kind of resistance to these ideas? Yeah, and I think like a lot to do with the epidemics of ICE and all these other other issues that keep coming up on the news. It's like so easy to label someone as broken or get a stigma of oh they're a criminal and just to easily shut the door and then not highlight the issues behind all that. Mm. That that's what I think, yeah. Yeah. And so at the event tomorrow will that be a key question that you'll be unpacking and asking candidates about, you know, what they're gonna do in terms of people that are in prison or people that are at risk of uh entering the prison system? Yeah, absolutely, and and we'll be talking about um, the kinds of um, supports that our people need. So, um, looking at you know getting um, adequate public housing and um, having like a strong social security net, like you know raising new start and youth allowance to um, what people can actually live on. Um, looking at having Aboriginal run um, services, um, like across you know disability, family violence, um, mental health, like all of these key issues, legal services, um, as well as um, a really key point is around abolishing the offences that target our people who are living in poverty. So, um, like Deb Kilroy's been working on the unpaid fines in Western Australia with the Free Her campaign. Um, and our campaign's called Free Our Future, and it's all connected with uh, Free Our Sisters, Free Our Kids as well. And um, similarly with um, what April will um, be talking about with um, her mum's campaign, um, so uh, abolishing the offence of public drunkenness is another one of those offences which is um, targeted at Aboriginal people and um, targeted at people who... Um, uh, you know, um, struggling to make ends meet. Mm. Mm. And, and perhaps we can hear um, more about that from you, April, in terms of the activism and work that you're engaged with at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, basically, you know, what we're trying to do right now is make sure that we speak to all the platforms that we possibly can to voice our opinion and really push for the change and to decriminalise public drunkenness. You know, it's um, not a surprise to us that that's used to target... Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people. So, you know, one of our priorities is to make sure that that gets decriminalised. Um, I guess that's one of the things that's good about tomorrow is we've got a voice and we're speaking directly to those candidates. So that would be an ideal um, audience for us. And, Mm. you know, at the moment we've got both of the petitions going out. So we've got the online petition that can be found in Action Network 
as well as the paper petition uh, that you guys are holding at your reception, but as well as other organisations that are around Victoria. So, you know, both of those are separate um, but are for the same cause. So if everyone could sign both of them, that would be great. Yeah, and perhaps we can share the link again uh, for the online petition on our Facebook page. Uh, Do you think, April, do you think there is... Uh, do you think that the, these candidates that you'll be speaking to tomorrow um, and politicians generally are on board with the possibility of making those changes? I mean, obviously, that was what the recommendation said 28 years ago. Like, do you think that, that, that people are actually going to you know, make this change? Oh, look, it, it, it's a bit tricky because you never really know. I feel like sometimes morally, yes, they want to, but other times they might be you know, a little bit standoffish, don't want to rock the boat. Um, you know, they use that law to be able to target our mob and, you know, police especially, you know, what are they going to do if that's taken away from them? Um, so I, I feel like there are, you know, the government candidates that are on board with it. It's just we need to get the right ones that are willing to be able to stand with us to make sure that that happens. And, mm. you know, once it's, you know, getting all the pieces of the puzzle in play, really, and once that happens, I, I feel like we could be successful. And, you know, we're not asking just to decriminalise it and leave it be. We're asking for, you know, a public health alternative to make sure that the people that are affected by alcohol are placed, you know, with mob or they're in a culturally safe environment and, you know, they're, they're somewhere that they're monitored effectively. Unlike mum, you know, she was placed in an unsafe environment in a cell where, you know, police failed to do their job, failed their duty of care, which, you know, she's resulted in her death. You know, we're without a mum, the grandkids are without their nan. So if everybody that are in the right places in the government can, you know, stand behind us, then we can really make a difference and make sure that nobody else has to die because they've been targeted by this law. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, it, you know, clearly they need to listen and obviously the solutions are with First Nations people about what needs to happen and they know what, you know, you know what what changes and it's, there's so many of those structural factors that you've all raised and so it's, I guess it shows the importance of this event to really demonstrate that there is community support for these changes and pushing political leaders to kind of make that happen. Yeah, and it, it is systemic as well. Um, it, this is systemic racism that we're talking about. It's... Um, it's not, you can't just look at justice in isolation. It is connected to all these things like housing and social security and, um, and the, and the police and everything, um, April was just talking about. And, and yeah, that, you know, in, in, um, Tanya Day's coronial inquiry there, um, the family and April are calling for, um, systemic racism to be considered as an issue. And it's so important and it's so clear that it is an issue right across all of the, um, the things that our people confront in the justice system. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. And, you know, like, I think um, same sort of thing with people, you know, being a little bit nervous about what they get to stand behind. But, you know, systemic racism, it's clear for us because, you know, we see it daily. Um, yeah. For others that are, you know, privileged and, you know, they like to ignore what's going on um, around them. But... You know, systemic racism, we've asked it to be included because it's, you know, a huge issue around each decision that was made for mum to be arrested. But if the coroner does accept that into being within the scope, mum's case would be the first case to have it fully looked at. You know, there may have been little pieces 
of each inquest where racism was looked at, but to have the systemic racism and how each of those services interacted with mum and how that contributed to her death, you know, that's, that's going to be huge and hopefully that, you know, can make some change. Yeah, definitely, and then be used for other cases and then hopefully there won't be these cases where people are having to demonstrate that systemic racism was a thing. Yeah. yeah. Something that highlighted for me, like, especially when you were talking... Um, April was like when you were saying about you you wish that there was like a safe place for people to go and all this sort of stuff and like when we've had meetings of candidates or whoever lately and they say that they want to bring the justice incarceration rate down and then um, then you hear things like they're building a new women's prison in Victoria mm. and it's like well, do you really want to do that or do you just want to keep locking more people up because they could have used that to build a rehab facility to actually help these people mm-hmm. yep. yeah exactly yeah. So, just before we wrap up, so we haven't got a lot of time left on our show today, um, can we just go through the details of the event and who, you know, out of our listeners, like who should come and all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, definitely. Um, So, um, this event is also going to be a really strong celebration of our um, resilience and survival as well. And so, there's going to be some really great and deadly performances. Um, So, we've got Dreamtime Dancers. um, We've got Maylene Slater-Burns, which we're really excited about, um, incredible Aboriginal singer. Um, Yeah, and we've got some spoken word. We've got um, a whole range of um, performers um, as well as incredible speakers. So um, both April and Jess will be speaking um, as well as um, Cheryl Axelby, who's the co-chair of Change a Record. We've also got um, Rouge from Colour Code will be speaking. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah, and um, we've also got... um, uh, Kate Chapman from Jira um, will be speaking, as well as um, Narita Waite, who's the CEO of Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service. Um, and I hope I haven't forgotten anyone. <laughs> but there's like big lineup. Yeah, there's a, a huge lineup of, yeah. of really powerful speakers and um, covering off all of these issues and the issues that are really current to Aboriginal people, but also um, people of colour. Oh, sorry. So also um, Salson from um, Young for Economic Justice. So they're a group of diverse young people who are calling for um, a, a raising new, the rate of new start. Right, yeah. yeah. And so if, um, if people, like people who are attending, can they also ask questions as well? Is it kind of... Is yes. that how it's going to work? Yeah, so it's going to be like a um, like a yarning circle, really, and um, so a chance to hear from all these really powerful speakers, um, but then to talk about the issues that matter to you. So we're really encouraging Aboriginal people and people of colour from um, the local area um, to come down and have a chance to have your voice heard um, by the candidates, and then there'll be a, an opportunity to ask the candidates questions as well. Um, yeah, so it should be a really powerful event. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We would love to keep continuing the conversation about the Free Our Sisters campaign. It's obviously huge and we can't wait to see you know how it all unfolds so thank you so much no thank, thank you. you yeah sorry we also encourage allies to come as well sorry it's not just for um aboriginal people and people of color allies are welcome but the focus is going to be on our voices thank so yeah 5 p.m yeah. aboriginal events at league um awesome. tomorrow yeah well the best thank Hope you to so see much you all there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you 3cr radio that's independent progressive and making a difference.
You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. That's all we have time for today. Thank you to our amazing guests. We will, you will hear us next week.